Folks, this is Shaq Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 25th, 2014, and this is episode 1434 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. We're going to talk about unschooling. Uh, and we're going to actually talk about it in a little bit different light than we ever have before. A, a guy that's doing it has written quite a few books about it and other ways of living. Uh, kind of off the grid a little bit, uh, let's say more independently. And his view on unschooling is maybe we should actually call it immersion learning. He's a cool guy. His name's Ben Hewitt. He'll be with us in just a bit. Before I get on to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, HarvestEating.com, the awesome, the illustrious, the very, very cool chef, Keith Snow. He's got a great website, a great YouTube channel, a great podcast, great seasonings, and great sauces. All of that you'll find and more at HarvestEating.com, where Chef Keith will teach you to cook seasonally and locally and how to make cooking a life skill. Next up today, herbs of a different kind, westernbotanicals.com. If I need an herb and it's not growing in my backyard and I don't have it, I go to Western Botanicals and they do. If it's legal and it's an herb and you can find it in the United States, you'll find it at Western Botanicals. And if you're not sure what you need, pick up the phone, give them a call, talk to them. They're real people that really care about you and they will help you out. And uh, give them a call if you need anything at all. And remember, they also they also are one of the biggest supporters that we have. They have a program called their Premium Membership Program. It's $50 a year. Uh, any TSP member, if you use the link on the website, can get it for $25. If you are a member of the Support Brigade, you get it free. So that is just an incredibly great discount. Harvest Eating and Chef Keith Snow also give you a discount if you're a member. And on that, if you're not a member, now is the time to become a member. My membership program is 50 bucks a year. And that's really a good deal. It's 18.3 cents an episode. So if you think the show's worth a couple dimes when you're done, it's worth joining. I get you great discounts like the two I just mentioned and over 40 more. I give you a bunch of great premium content. There's almost $200 worth of ebooks you get for free the day you sign up for 50 bucks. But right now you can sign up for $30. Just use the discount code FALL14, F-A-L-L-1-4. Uh, it's to celebrate the, uh, the, the fall equinox that we just experienced on September 21st. It's tick-tock, tick-tock. The year marches on. It'll be Christmas before you know it. So uh, if you're not a member yet, this would be a great time to do it. I don't know that I've ever done a, a mainstream, wide-open sale for anything less than 30 bucks. That's about as low as it gets. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you guys uh, actually qualify for a discount as well, but this is a better deal. Uh, I do a really good discount for first responders. It's 25%. This is in the neighborhood of 30%, actually close to 40% off. So do consider uh, signing up now, no matter whom you are, and you get a great deal on that first year of membership and try it out and see if it's what you really want to do. But I'm promising you, I'm promising you, folks, if you join my MSB and you're buying anything from trees to plant in your backyard to ammunition for your firearms and you use the discounts in there, this membership pays for itself. That's how I've designed it to make it easy for you to support the show. With that, let's get into the uh, the year that was the episode. In 1434, we have a revolt in Rome, and Hussite versus Hussite 
The Hussites Wind from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com for the year 1434. I'm going to read to you a revolt in Rome. You can read the Hussite versus Hittite saga by going to the page yourself. Here we go. A revolt in Rome. The construction of the cathedral in Florence has been completed, but will not be consecrated until 1436. In the meantime, Rome has fallen into open rebellion. The new Pope Eugene IV was hand-picked successor of the previous Pope, but the previous Pope was a little too generous to his friends and family in handing out choice papal lines and positions. Imagine that. Somebody in authority abused it. Wow. Never would have thought that would have happened all the way back in 1434. When Pope Eugene took office, he aggressively eliminated this sort of corruption. Unfortunately, the people he has been pursuing are also the people who have been maintaining order in Rome. And it's all coming apart. Pope Eugene flees to, flees to Florence and remains there for the next ten years. There was no Pope in Rome once again. Uh, my take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together, for Pope Eugene IV was a mixed bag, as leaders are. He is finding that reform can be quite difficult, even when the corruption is rather obvious and simple to fix. If one begins a widespread reform, it causes competing factions to join together to resist the change. In principle, one would think it is best to simply change everything that needs to be changed. But despite what critics say, the Pope is no longer an absolute ruler. Whatever his decisions, good or bad, they must be carried out by others. Simply making demands is not enough. He must convince others to go along. I kind of, you know, want to take you back with my take to this statement here by Alex. Unfortunately, the people he has been pursuing are also the people who have been maintaining order in Rome, and it's all coming apart. This is the this is the situation that we're in right now in many instances. There's many things the government does that I don't like. There's many things the government does that are abusive. But as we begin a deconstruction and move toward liberty, it's the the fact of the matter is that folks that are libertarian or anarchist in, in nature must comprehend is you can't go from where we are to complete liberty overnight because what you'll end up with is what you call a Power vacuum. And vacuums are rapidly filled because they are abhorred by nature in every sense, whether they're a true vacuum or a metaphorical one like we're talking about here. And we could learn a little bit from this as we continue to arm moderate Islamists in the, uh, in the combat of uh, extreme Islamists in the middle of a country that never did a damn thing to us, known as Syria, And uh, create power vacuums there that we're assured that you know we're gonna we're gonna handle this. Um, yeah, yeah. Watch where we are by 2016's elections. Watch the power shift from the from the Democrats to the Republicans in the White House. Watch that whole mess that they're making on purpose right now be an excuse for it. And watch as greater tyranny rises here because of what happens there. And watch as your fellow people believe it to be necessary. And to quote Star Wars, or paraphrase Star Wars, I guess, that is how liberty dies, with thunderous applause. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Even when there are tyrants, they cannot just be pulled out 
It has to be a transitional period. Even the Mongols kept the roads open, and when the great Khans fell, the roads between the east and the west fell into disrepair and under the control of even bigger thieves than those who once controlled the roads. With that, let us get into the main topic of today's show, which is homeschooling, or as uh, Ben Hewitt, who's my guest, is, is calling it now, immersion learning. I really like that phrase, and... Uh, And with that, I want to say, hey, Ben, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me, Jack. Uh, you are in a perfect week. I did a show earlier this week talking about the lost generation, as it's been called, the new lost generation, the millennials, and a lot to do with the education system there. And we're here to talk about unschooling, homeschooling, that type of thing. Before we do that, though, could you tell people a little bit about your background and, and what you actually do right now, other than raise a couple really great kids and help them learn? Yeah, so I live with my family in northern Vermont, um, and we live on a 40-acre, uh, sort of, I guess I would call it a farmstead. I always sort of struggle with the precise definition. I think some people would consider it a farm, and some people would consider it a homestead, so I sort of combine the two. <laughs> um, and uh, at the the homestead uh, farmstead is is um, a source for you know the vast majority of our nourishment. We probably grow um, and process about ninety percent of our own calories, along with all of our heating fuel, um, all of our lumber and building materials, other than those which we can't actually manufacture on site. Um, And then um, for whatever sort of cash income we need beyond that, I'm actually a writer by trade. And I guess I sort of like to say that I make my living in two ways. One way is uh, by writing, and uh, the other way I make my money is by not spending money, if that makes any sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Uh, but you're a writer, and you're, you're, you're educating your own children. You're taking that on your back. But I'm looking at your bio here. And it says you're a high school dropout. Mm. Did, didn't anybody ever tell you you're not supposed to quit things? I think any I, I I'm completely open to quitting things that are ruining my life, Jack. <laughs> I'm, I'm entirely open, and I would encourage anyone else to consider doing the same. So, um, you know, I, I think you know you're totally spot on that there is this sort of um, American mantra of you know, never quit, or what is it? Uh, quitters never win, quitters never, never win, quit, right? Or whatever. But you know. As, as I think you're probably keenly aware, you see a lot of people sort of spiraling themselves into misery by following that rule. So um, there is some discernment is necessary. Let's put it that way. Yeah, definitely. I, I kind of set you up with that one. But, I mean, I look at it this way. I always tell, when people tell me that, I'm like, well, I see this fly right now sitting on the, the ledge of my window, and he's trying to fly through the glass. Do you think he should quit or keep trying? Right. There you go. Yeah. Because pretty soon he's going to be legs up in a dead fly, right? So yeah, I yeah. And eventually you're probably going to smack him anyway, so it's kind of yeah. pointless, I guess, on his part, one way or the other. But, you know, it's interesting, mate. I, not long after I dropped out of school and, and was sort of starting to um, actually pick up some income through my writing, I, I remember my father sort of telling my grandmother about my plans that I was sort of intending to become a full-time freelance writer. And she sort of looked at him and, and, and she said, but, but he didn't finish school. He's not qualified. Uh, you know, and, and it really gets to, I think, a really salient point about some of our assumptions around education in this country. I mean, I, I, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about this as the conversation evolves. But, um, you know, clearly we would not be following the path we are with our family if we didn't think a lot of those assumptions are tragically flawed. 
And I, I always thought that the qualification is to be a freelance writer or be able to write well enough for the medium in which you're selling your writing in and make a compelling case that the person that you're doing business with should do business with you. I didn't, I didn't think there was a degree in freelance. Yeah, writing. well, interestingly enough, I mean, no one has <laughs> ever asked me for my diploma, right? And the other, the other really interesting point uh, is that by not by dropping out of school and then not going on to college. Um, I avoided assuming an enormous quantity of debt, right? That I presumably, if I, I, th- I think probably if I had graduated high school and I come from a, a family of, of, you know, higher learners or whatever you want to call it, you know, very educated people, um, I think it's really likely that I would have fallen in um, to that pattern of going on to college and in the process would have assumed a lot of debt. And I probably would not have been able to afford to be a writer by trade simply because I would have gotten on that debt treadmill. Um, and, you know, I see this all the time. And, and I think anyone who's sort of, you know, eyes are open, uh, you know, sees how so many people who go on to school um, and end up, you know, in a lot of debt, that is the sort of start of them um, in some ways being trapped by their by their financial obligations. Yeah, and you know, I think you're probably like me. I'm not opposed to college. I'm no, just opposed. No, to and I don't, you know, that doesn't happen to everyone. Obviously, I'm not saying yeah. that that's an inevitable outcome of going on to college. I'm just saying that it is an it outcome most. of certainly not thinking about what you want to do if you're of just going on to college sort of blindly without thinking about it. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. I'm not opposed to it. I'm just opposed to it for me. Right. There you, you know? go. Yeah. And I'm opposed to it for people that really shouldn't be there. I, whenever I do like a presentation at a live audience and I talk about college and, and some of my rules, like not every kid should go to college and everybody goes, oh, right. Said that, right? And I'll, I'll say, everybody here that went to college, raise your hands. And, you know, if you're looking at an audience that's mostly from their 30s to their 50s, like 80% of the hands go up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, everybody that knew at least one person that shouldn't have been there, keep your hand up, and no hands go down. Yeah, right. And when I'm talking about their kids, I'm like, that could be your kid. You don't know. Sure. You can't decide your kid will go to college when they're two. Right. And I've got relations. I'm sure you know people like that, too. They're going to college. He's two, dude. Right. And you have no idea. And what about the value of all of that time and sort of life force energy that is expended on college, too? I mean, you know, we're not even thinking about what else they might be doing with that with that time and those those resources, both financial, you know, physical, emotional, mental, whatever you want to call it, um, there's a lot of other amazing things to do in this world that have nothing to do with college. Um, anyway, I, you know, we're kind of getting on a college rant here, riff here. No, and again, I, it's like, I don't necessarily think there is anything wrong with college, uh, but, I don't but just like you, I am, you know, it, it certainly has not been a disabling factor in my life to have not gone on to college and to have dropped out of high school. And in some ways, I actually see it as having been an enabling factor. I have to say, before we move on to unschooling, that as somebody with a high school diploma, the only time it was ever of value to me is when I joined the Army. Uh-huh. No one in every job I've ever had, it was honestly assumed that I must have one. Uh-huh. No one ever asked to see it. Yeah, and you know, I think also a lot of it is how you present yourself. You know? Yeah. Um, and you know, you're obviously really articulate, um, you know, having spent a lot of my years writing, I, I mean, I hope I'm fairly articulate, you know, I don't, I, you know, it's certainly helpful to present as someone who um, is is fairly well read and, and quote unquote educated, although that's another sort of pet peeve I have, is when people say to me, oh, you're not educated simply because I didn't finish high school and go to college. I mean, there are so, there are an innumerable number of ways to get an education, um, only some of which have to do with um, institutionalized learning. 
The same person probably loved the movie Goodwill Hunting, by the way. I'm just saying. Right. Yeah. As, as, as we move on, um, we're here to talk about unschooling. So unschooling is, is a, a form of homeschooling, I right. guess, but differs in some ways. I think a lot of people look at unschooling like childhood anarchy, but yet the people that say that don't know what anarchy is either. Yeah, so, yeah. So they're confused. So what does unschooling mean to you? Okay, well, let me, can, I, can I first just sort of put in a quick plug for this book that I have that just came out, which is really Hell yeah. sort, of about, it's sort of a memoir of our experiences unschooling our children. And the book is called Homegrown Adventures in Parenting Off the Beaten Path, Unschooling and Reconnecting with the Natural World. Um, and so that was sort of the, you know, that's, I think it's in a large part the impetus for us having this conversation is this book just came out and it, and it really goes into a lot of detail uh, with some of the things that we'll probably talk about today. Um, I, and I, I guess I want to start out and I talk about this in the book a little bit about the fact that I actually don't really like the term unschooling um, because I think it, it, while it does a pretty good job of describing what we don't do, it does a really poor job of describing what we actually do do. Um, and so I hadn't settled on this term or been introduced to this term um, be, uh, during the writing of the book. So it's not in the book, but I have since been introduced to the term um, immersion learning. Um, and I really like that term. So I'm on sort of a one man quest to change unschooling to immersion learning. Hmm. That makes sense. I, that in the military, it's exactly how you learn a, a foreign language. Right. You, and, and, and it's exactly describes what we do. I mean, our children learn through immersion into their environment. Um, hmm. and so, uh, and I think that's one thing that, that, um, all, maybe most. I mean, one of the great things, I'm gonna, I may keep referring to um, immersion learning as unschooling out, out of habit, um, but sure. one of the great things about unschooling, immersion learning, whatever you want to call it, is that um, it can be a million different things to a million different families, right? Whereas sort of like compulsory standardized education is generally one dif one thing to a million different families. Um, but one thing I think is that, that, that really um, holds true for most immersion learning families is that it is that desire to immerse their children in their environment, no matter what that environment happens to be. In our case, um, it happens to be rural Vermont. I know of people practicing immersion learning in urban areas, uh, you know, in suburbia um, and in places more remote than where we are. Um, but it is all about, you know, sort of children learning with and alongside their family um, and in their community. Um, another distinction and way I, I like to sort of describe it um, that I that to me is really succinct and really works. Whereas, you know, public education um, is all about sort of trying to make learning happen. I mean, it's com called compulsory education. You're, they're trying, you're trying to force children to learn. Um, our approach is about making room for children to learn. That, that's, that's really very powerful. And it's what I've, whenever I've talked to somebody that's defending, like, as though I'm actually attacking it, because if it's right for you, go there. Right. The, 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 the structured educational system, if you want to call it that. And I'll say, well, what is it that you want out of the education system? And they'll, they'll always start out with, I want children to learn, and I'll say, stop. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, but what I want is I want children to want to learn. Yes, and and you can't, I, I would argue actually that you actually cannot really stop children from learning and, you know, unless you try to force it on them. I mean, every parent knows 
you know, what's the best way to get your child to hate a particular food, right? You tell them that they have to eat it. Have to eat you it. You know, children have to learn. Adults have to learn. We, we, it's as natural to us as breathing. It is what we do. Um, but when we're, when we're put in an environment and we are told that we have to learn, we're told what we have to learn, we're told how we have to learn it, we're told when we're going to learn it, Right. And we're essentially stripped of our fundamental sort of human rights and freedoms. I mean, it's no wonder that we sour on it. Absolutely. I I think kids are dramatically interested in things if they're not forced and actually sometimes more interested if they're if they have to reach for it. So, like, when I first met my wife, uh, my my son, my stepson was seven years old and he was only a few weeks away from turning eight when this happened. But I was eating some kale. And he kind of turned his nose up looking at it and all. I didn't try to get him to eat it. And he said, what's that? I said, it's kale. And he goes, I don't think I want to try that. And I said, well, that's okay. You're not allowed to have it anyway. Yeah, exactly. You can't right? anyway. And he said, well, why not? I said, you have to be eight years old to eat kale. Right. He said, well, I'm almost dead. I said, well, that's too bad. When you're eight, if you want to try it, you can. Right. And like the day after his eighth birthday, can we go get some kale? Yeah. Right? He didn't like it, but he tried it right with an open mind because he was told he couldn't. And I think a lot of things with learning are like – you can almost tease a kid into wanting. I, I think that's a little bit advanced for you to learn right now. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, let me show you how wrong you yeah, are. Dangle the carrot Shut a little bit. Right? You right. know? Yeah. And, you know, hey, before we get too much further, I, I do think it's worth pointing out, you know, sort of early on in this conversation that, you know, while my critiques of institutionalized education can be, I guess, somewhat, seem somewhat harsh and provocative, maybe. I, they are really a critique of the system and not generally the people working in the system. Um, I, my experience, anyway, has been that almost, certainly everyone that I've been in contact with um, who is a professional educator, um, you know, is, a real, is really, really well-intentioned and generally very, very much aware of the systemic shortcomings. And I, you know, I hear from educators all the time. I get emails you know, regularly um, for people to say, you know, just expressing their frustration um, mm-hmm. that they really feel as if they can't do what they know is best for their children because of the constraints that are placed upon them. So I do want to make it clear, you know, particularly to any teachers out there who might be listening, that, that um, you know, this is not a critique of, of, of um, the teaching profession. It's a critique of uh, the systemic deficiencies. I agree, but honestly, with the ones that, that take offense to it, you're pushing a string. I've been saying exactly. the same thing right. for so long, and what happens is the very person often that will acknowledge all the problems will turn right around then entrenched in defending the system, and the reason is that people defend that which they depend on. So if you're a teacher in that system, despite all its its problems and shortcomings and all the things you'd like to change, well, it is how you earn your living. So you don't want to hear anybody start tearing it apart. Yeah, not too bad, right? And people fear change, right? They fear because you might get rolled out in the change. You don't know, right? And, and I think the other thing that I my my issue is again, it's not the person or their intentions. I think we've been misled to believe that teaching is some kind of mystical power, and when <laughs> When the school imparts you with the ability and the state applies unto you thy certification, then thou shall have the ability to teach. And start when you tell somebody that, that, that not only believes that but became part of it and bought into it, invested in it, and took years of their lives to become that, the child can teach themselves. Right. 
whoa, you're saying I'm not necessary. Right. Well, I'm saying maybe you're not as necessary the way you think you are as you really are. Yeah. Well, what, yeah, what's that saying? It's very hard to get a man to understand that which his livelihood is dependent upon him not understanding or something like that. Yeah. You know? And, and I, I, I love your point about, um, uh, you know, sort of teacher certification and, and you know, whether and, and qualification, really. And I, and I think some of that comes from, because I hear this a lot from other parents um, who – would like to follow a similar path and and they feel like they're not qualified. They simply just don't really have the confidence. Um, and, and I sort of puzzled over this for a long time. And it was actually my wife who sort of said, you know, she came up with the answer when we were talking about it or what I think might be the answer. Um, and she's like, you know, all of the, those people went to school. So of course they don't have the confidence in their own capacity to teach um, because they grew up inside a system where they were basically told um, that they, you know, that they didn't have that capacity and where it was demonstrated that, you know, te- only teachers teach. Correct. Correct. And it's, it, I mean, you know what, as soon as you go outside of organized education in that capacity, any other place where people go to learn, the exact opposite is the case. Mm-hmm. Go to a martial arts class. As soon as you have any competence whatsoever, you are encouraged to co-teach. That's really right? interesting. You're yeah. brought up to a formation and said, here, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go talk to this lady that wants to get her son in class. You take over the class for right now. Mm-hmm. And every other form of education I can think of, other than the classical or modern education system, I should say, um, the student is encouraged to become a teacher, but we create this mysticism yeah. in academia that the teacher has to be qualified. And my, I know I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but I feel like a, a person who is a fourth grader, they got straight A's in third grade, is legitimately qualified other than some maturity issues to teach the second grade. Yeah, you know, and that's, this brings up another issue, I think, with um, sort of institutionalized education, which is the age stratification. Um, yeah. And one thing I really observe in my kids a lot, because they do spend a lot of time with other kids, some of whom are in school, some of whom are not, um, but we have a weekly sort of skills sharing group that gathers here, and the ages range from about four to um, the oldest is my my older son Finn, who's who's twelve. Um, and one thing has been really fascinating to me is to observe the extent to which my kids are willing and able, and actually, you know, just love to teach to work with the younger kids in this group and also what that does for their self-confidence is just remarkable it's not, it's, it's it's really so you know their father is really heartwarming to watch you know well and it, it, again it makes me think as a prior service military person that it, the number one way you teach a skill in the military is as soon as you teach it require the person you're teaching to teach it back to you oh that's interesting, and it entrenches yeah. it in their mind they can't ever get rid of it if you sure. do that and it's it, you know and, and and again it brings us to another Another point, which is that, you know, so much of the learning in a, a structured, uh, you know, institutionalized educational system is is very abstract. So when you segregate all these subject matters, sort of artificially segregate all these subject matters into 40 minute blocks and teach them, you know, sort of via books um, uh, or, or iPads or whatever kids are using these days, um, you know, that's a very, very abstract way of learning. Um, whereas when kids have an opportunity to actually learn, um, you know, in their environment, when they're immersed, as they're immersed in their environment, it becomes incredibly tangible. And, and, and what you're talking about, sort of then sort of transferring that same knowledge onto someone else, I think just sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of, again, uh, uh, bumps up the tangibility of it. Um, so it just feels so real. And if, if I think back to, 
the stuff, the, the knowledge and experience that sort of stuck with me in my lifetime, you know, it's almost never something that I was told that I had to learn or that I learned simply by reading something. Um, it's always stuff that I learned through experience. When let's look at some of the objections people then then have to this approach. So, what sort of future do you imagine for your children? Do you worry about the opportunities that they're going to miss? You know, um, how you know what, what's your education? Oh, my my father, who is a high school dropout, homeschooled me. Uh, <laughs> that type of thing. You know? yeah. Like, what, what opportunities exist once they're adults? No matter how good their education is, right? If they don't have the the, the seal of the state, so to speak. Right. Okay. So. I- this is great. Um, I, I, I'm going to love to riff on this for a little bit. Um, so, uh, well, let's talk about opportunities and missed opportunities. And people say to me, do have said to me, you know, aren't you worried about the opportunity? Aren't they missing out on opportunities by not going to school? And my answer to that, the only honest answer to that, Jack, is absolutely they are. Of course they are. Um, every kid um, is missing out on opportunities because whatever they're doing, they are by default not doing something else, right? So just as my kids are missing out on particular opportunities by not being in school, those school school-going children are missing out on opportunities that my kids are having, and all of these kids are missing out on opportunities that other children are having. I mean, this is an incredibly diverse world with an enormous amount of experience and opportunity. Uh, uh, and, and, and just things to engage with and in. Um, and no matter how hard you try, you're never going to expose your child to anything but a fraction of what this world has to offer. So, so you know, yes, I will say that my kids are missing out on certain experiences and opportunities, just like every child is, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, now, in terms of, you know, what sort of future do I imagine for my kids? I mean, I guess... In some ways, I don't necessarily feel it's um, uh, in the best interest of my children to, you know, think too hard about their future. Um, I would much prefer to think hard about their present um, and what sort of, you know, world and experiences I am able to provide for them here. Um, I We have been really fortunate in our life um, to have a lot of really good friends and mentors who um, have given us, shown us examples of how to make a really, really good and rewarding and meaningful life um, outside sort of the dominant education and sort of career paradigm of this country. One of one of our best friends and one of our children's mentors um, is someone who um, lives almost exclusively in the wilderness um, and makes makes a very small living, um, you know, teaching workshops and other sort of wilderness skills. Um, but lives, you know, one of the most rewarding lives of anyone I know. He's incredibly content and and happy living that way. Now, I'm not saying that's what my kids are going to do, or that's what they should do. I'm just saying that I'm really fortunate to have see, to have had that modeled for me as as a, as a possible path. Um, and so. You know, I don't worry really about what my children are going to do. I, another reason I don't worry about it is that I've spoken with numerous adults who have been unschooled, and I've seen that it has in no way been an impediment to whatever choices they've wanted to make. So most of them actually did end up going on to college, um, and uh, many of them have settled in to, you know, what might be defined as pretty typical careers. And if that's what my kids choose, that's fine, too. And and might I add that from what I have seen in the research I have done, because as as a younger person, when I was in my late 20s or mid-20s raising a young 
uh, kid, many of the objections that I would overcome now very logically, I had myself at the time because I didn't know. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, when I when I when I look at all of that, what I what I end up realizing is the only thing I've ever wanted for, for my son is for him to be happy. Mm hmm. That's about the only part of his future I'm really going to dictate because what I've noticed is that in every instance that I, I know a person who's down a career path that was pre-planned for them. They had a father that was a lawyer, so you're going to go to law school and right. you're definitely going to college. Those people are all freaking miserable. Mm -hmm. And as far as competing with the people that followed the conventional path, most of these homeschoolers, from my research, that go to college, spank the pants off the conventionally educated. Yeah, so this is there's, there's a couple of really interesting things there. First, about your your latter part of that comment, um, and it, in all of all of the adult unschoolers I've interviewed, which which you know, granted, is a fairly anecdotal sampling. I think I interviewed about uh, thirteen or fourteen for this article I did for Outside Magazine. Um, uh, all of the ones who had gone on to college, which was I think twelve out of however many I talked to, said it was. Um, an, uh, an enormous advantage to have been unschooled um, because by the time they got to, to got to college or university, um, they weren't burned out, uh, and, you know, and they they went with an intent. They knew what they wanted, and this is something I find that's really ubiquitous across sort of the homeschool unschool crowd um, is that these kids generally tend um, to figure out what it is they want, and they and they have the res the resourcefulness to go after it. And in many cases, that does include college. There's no question about it. You know, it's not, it's like there, there aren't things to be learned from that path. In fact, there are a lot. It's just that I think most kids kind of sleep, end up sleepwalking through it um, by matter of course almost. Um, so uh, there was this, uh, you had said something prior to that in your comment that I wanted to pick up on, but I, I got off track and lost my train of thought. So I'll let that one go for now. Maybe it'll, it'll come back to me. Was it just about them being happy? Oh, yes. Okay, yeah. So I would say, thank you. I would take that even one step further and say, you know, I guess the only thing that I really want for my kids is, is and, and, you know, we probably mean really the same thing. I want them to, to find a meaningful path in this life, mm -hmm. you know? And that, and in some ways, I think, you know, I mean, happiness is awesome. In my experience, there are a lot of different sort of emotional conditions that have contributed to my life feeling, feeling meaningful to me. And not all of them have actually been happiness, if that makes any sense, you know? So, um, so I think that, you know, what I want for them, um, is a meaningful life and whatever that ends up being or meaning to them, um, is something I can get behind, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think it's ridiculous for, any human being to believe that they should dictate the future of any other human being, no matter how much you care about them or think you're right. You can't know because that child has a brain that's independent of your brain. That's it, right. it has its own desires and goals. So I think one of the one of I think one of the most the, the biggest strengths about homeschooling, and this is why I see the communication capability of the child that's homeschooled or unschooled, is that because they have that independence they're able to communicate with you at a much higher level because they're respected as being what they are, mm -hmm. a small person, not a child. Like you see it with, with, with especially young women. I don't want to pick on anybody, but to the extreme when the baby's a baby and it's all about dressing them all like a freaking doll. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's not a little, a little 
thing to play with. That is a, a human being. Right. And I think that when you stop dictating to a person and start encouraging a person, you're actually treating them like an individual. Yeah. And that's why I think these kid, the kids that I've talked to that are homeschooled talk to me like they're 10 years older than, than, than the average for, for their age. Yeah. And I, I, a 14 year old talks to me like he's 20, 24 years old. I totally agree with you. And I think we have this sort of a, a cultural syndrome of sort of belittle, belittling children in a lot of ways. Um, you know, not really. I mean, I was just thinking today uh, and talking with someone today about how, um, you know, how many opportunities do we really give children to sort of be of use um, in this society anymore. And, and by being of use, I mean to like really sort of, you know, contribute in a tangible way to their family and community well-being. Um, and, and that doesn't happen very often. And, 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 you know, yet another one of my gripes with, um, sort of structured institutionalized learning is that it's so risk averse. You know, they, mm. there are just not opportunities um, for children to be exposed to appropriate risk, um, in part because they don't have the resources or the knowledge to do that, right? And yeah. in part because, you know, we live in a, in a, a really sort of uh, trigger-happy litigious society, so they're simply scared to do that. Um, well, they don't have the opportunity to fail. And I, contrasting the two opportunities, let's say you had your child in conventional school and you do know they need a decent grade. So they have a science project they're asked to do, and they, they tell you what the project's going to be, and you already know it's going to fall flat on its ass. It's just not going to work, right? Okay, as a parent, you almost have to say in that conventional environment, oh, you can't take the time to do this, and I already know it's not going to work. You need to pick a different project. Right. As, a, as, a, as an unschooler or a homeschooler, off you go. Yeah. Right. Let I mean, them I, I, it's not going to hurt anything cause, because then you're going to say, well, that didn't work. Now what can you do? But in this regimented environment, you don't have time to let them fail. And you learn so much from failure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many longbows, you know, my older son Finn made before. I, I bet you dozens, literally, before he actually sort of made one that was really, you know, capable of being a hunting weapon. And so, you know, failure after failure after failure after failure after failure, you know. And he just kept ticking because it was something he was so genuinely interested in and passionate about. Um, and then eventually, you know, success. Um, Absolutely. I mean, without the willingness to fail, Edison doesn't make the light bulb. Bell doesn't make the phone. Marconi doesn't make the radio. Right. Right. So yeah, those are yeah. those are three pretty important damn things to society that that came from failure. Yeah. I yeah. I couldn't agree more. So what about the other big objection? And and I have my own responses to this because it drives me nuts from because I know now. But the big one is well, what about their socialization? Uh, I do, I'm so hoping this is with other children and understanding how to work in the real world where people have to compare uh, that one. Okay, yeah. So um, wow, yeah. Unsurprisingly, I've got a, I've got a rant on this one too, Jack. Um, so uh, when people ask me. You know, are you worried about their socialization? Um, the, the snarky reply that I love to give, which I always give with a smile on my face because I'm really inviting them into a deeper conversation. But my snarky reply is, of course, I'm worried about their socialization. That's why I don't send them to school. Right. Um, and a more nuanced reply, the conversation that I really like to have is, um, you know, first of all, let's distinguish between being socialized and being social. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. Okay. And so, and, and, you know, to those listeners who, to whom it doesn't make sense, I would say that, you know, being socialized is really sort of 
learning or be told or being taught how to uh, adhere to a certain set of normative behaviors, right? Um, and I think we, we would really um, do well to think about whether a lot of the sort of normative behaviors that are happening in a school setting are actually um, something to sort of uh, to strive for. Um, and, I, you know, I do want my kids to be social. I absolutely want my kids to be social. I guess I'm just not so sure I want them to be socialized. Well, and the way I respond to that is often, okay, so when you have kids in a school environment, they only get so much supervision. They get into the pecking order thing. Uh, they get into the bullying, all this other stuff. And, and children pretty much have three choices as to how they'll fit into that. And they don't really have choices. It just kind of happens based on their personality. You can be dominant in those social groups. You can be aloof and unnoticed. Or you can be the the, the bottom and, <laughs> and be the one that's the, that's the victim. So – then my response to that parent is, which one would you like your child to be the dominant that, 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 that asserts their will on other children, the aloof that's like the wallflower that stays out of the way and doesn't really get bothered to bother anyone, or the one that's the victim? Which one of those three sounds like a good choice? Right. And this all stems from the fact that we've misled ourselves to believing that the school is the real world, but we know better. Because when the kid comes home all upset because they didn't get invited to a party, you're like, don't worry about it. This doesn't mean crap. But then you turn around and believe that it does. Right. Yeah. So when when here's here's how I explain that. Let's say you and I had a conventional job. Thank God neither one of us do, but we we both had a job. We work at cubicles across from each other. And let's say every day, because I don't like you for whatever reason, Ben, I walk over to you, and as you're, you're picking up your morning paperwork, I slap it on the ground and I pop you in the head, and I go back to my cubicle. It's about 13 seconds before I'm either arrested, fired, or both. Mm -hmm. Okay, But in school, right. you're told what? You need to learn to make friends with Jack and deal with it. Right, right, right. But now, that's not the real – there's no place other than the school or possibly the prison where that behavior is ex acceptable and the victim is actually given the burden of responsibility mm -hmm. by society. Mm -hmm. Fine. So that's not the real – so when you say how are they going to adjust to the real world, I have a – now I have a new answer. I like your answer. I, I absolutely want them to adjust to the real world. That's why I don't want to send them to a fake one. Yeah, well, and that's that, – that, you know, uh, uh, this, yeah, I get that question or, or that criticism, I guess, a lot, which is, you know, they're never going to be prepared for the real world. And, and I, you know, it's like I'm looking out my window right now in my office, you know, and I'm looking out. We've got some cows grazing. We've got a, uh, we've got a couple pigs. My – my son is down there dyeing his traps for trapping season, and I'm thinking, what's not real about this, right? There yeah. are a million different real worlds out there. There's no sort of like one real world. That's a load of sh you know? There yeah, are you say shit on the air here, by the way, and I'm laughing because as you're saying this, I'm watching 24 ducks file by my window. Yeah, and so, you know, we have this sort of like, you know, I guess sort of like hazy assumption of like what constitutes the real world, and it's like this, I guess, this from what I, I'm led to understand, the real world is this sort of like dog-eat-dog -dog place where, where my children are going to be, you know, forever disadvantaged because they weren't forced to sit in a school for eight hours a day. I mean, you know, that's just such a load of crap. Um, and so the one thing, one other thing, you know, I'm sort of like reverting back to that, our little conversation about like, what do I want for my children? You know, I really want for my children to have the resourcefulness and the, and the creativity and the power of imagination and the confidence, the self-confidence to understand that in large part they can fashion their life and their world as they wish, right? Their life is in their hands. 
Uh, well, and when, when I hear things like the one person I talked to about this said, well, what if the child decides they want to go into the business world? And I, and I, I told this lady who's being really snotty when she says to me, I said, well, I've met your children. And I've met children the same age that are in that environment. And let me tell you, if they both decide to go in business, your kids are going to work for them. Mm-hmm. And I know you don't want to hear that, and I know that's going to upset you, but I'm telling you the truth. Based on the path they're on right now, the way they articulate themselves right now, the motivation that they have right now, if that remains constant for the next 20 years, if they're both in business, your, your children are going to be working for children, uh, at that point, adults like them. Right. So, and they are. And, and you can be as pissed as you want, but I'm telling you, that's... <laughs> that's what I see. And when people say, well, where are all the captains of industry that were homeschooled? Well, this is... It's, it's, it's an old phenomenon that's new again, but for, for 50, 70 years, it didn't exist. Right. There was very little of it. The, the, the children coming out of this cycle now are just now going into their 20s and 30s in large enough numbers to be noticed. Um, I do know people about my age or a little older that were homeschooled, but it was when I was in the 80s and the 70s, it was, he's the homeschool kid. Yeah, right. you like, definitely. Now they're like, dude, that's the homeschool kid, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so it's different now. I think as you see this wave, Especially with this babied teacup millennial thing going on, which is, I want to say again, is not the fault of the young people. It's the system they're in. And then you have this group of go-getters that have been taught innovation, independence, etc. I remember when my son was in an advanced placement physics class, and I talked to his teacher, and I said, what's the number one thing you have to get these kids to do to get them ready for college? And he said, to work it, to work on their own, to have initiative, mm-hmm. to, to form a group and do this without me. Right, right. He's like, I think he said, the, the grade is one thing. He goes, that's what I want. For he was a good teacher, you know. And homeschool kids have that already. I think that's you mentioned how how they do well in school because they're not burned out. I think another reason is kids come out of high school where they've been told what to do all the time. Sure. They get into college and they're said, here's your book, here's your curriculum, here's a lecture. Now go do a project. They're like, holy crap, I don't know what to do. A homeschool kids like. That's what I've always done. Right, yeah. You mean you're not going to bother me? Great. Yeah, you know? no, I, I think that's a really good point. I think um, also, you know, another point that is, is worth bringing up. I mean, first of all, I just don't buy, like, I, I think like you, I don't buy the, the argument that my kids are somehow going to be disadvantaged in that regard. I think, I think if they want to be captains of industry, they, they'll, they'll figure out a way to be captains of industry. Um, but be that as it may, you know, what the hell is wrong with them not being captains of industry, right? Why, why can there not be dignity in working for someone else? Um, and so I, I think there's this sort of like assumption that, you know, all of our kids need to be winners and that the only, you know, the only way to sort of lead a life of, of, of success and dignity and all, you know, all of the sort of things that we sort of hold up as, as being desirable, you know, we all have to somehow, you know, compete to be on the top of the heap. But, you know, I I feel very strongly that um, as long as my children, again, feel as if they're living a meaningful life um, and feel as if they have some control of their destiny, then I really don't care whether they're digging ditches or or selling stocks. See, and that's that's how I feel, too, as long as it's by choice and not by happenstance. Right. right? I mean, that's that's the big thing. And I, I don't think that you I don't think that you guarantee anything with with a high school diploma today at all. Oh no. No, certainly not. not. And, and and I'm not saying that like it, it, there's no value to the current education system just that it's lacking in so many places and it's not like okay, I've ticked that box so now I can expect at least 
Right. It, it doesn't work that way. You can be a high school dropout making a million dollars a year, and you can be a, somebody with a master's degree mm-hmm. making minimum wage. And there's plenty of both to point to right now. Yes. The individual is far more key than the means by which they acquire their education. I agree. And, and you know, we haven't even gone into, you know, what I view as being – a very sort of high likelihood of of the job market shifting fairly radically over the next the coming decades, you know, yeah. and the fact that I think that you know a lot of the skills that my children are immersing themselves in now um, may actually come in um, pretty handy and be relatively marketable um, in their adult futures. I I look at it this way, so. The education system has been what it's been with some upgrades as far as, like, we put a computer in the classroom and whatever since the 1860s. It's based on this Prussian model. Sure. And it also has this cultural component that's linked, you know, back to our grandparents' generation and the success formulas of work really hard, never quit, be loyal to your employer instead of loyal to yourself. Mm -hmm. And, and, And these formulas for success, I hate to put it this way. They're outdated. We live in a world where somebody comes up with a simple concept like Twitter and becomes a billionaire. Mm-hmm. The success formula of 1920 is not completely invalid, but it's very lacking for what success formulas are today. Right. And we're teaching people in, in this structured education environment the success formula for yesterday mm-hmm. because we're comfortable with it. Sure. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, we had. it's like and it's just not, we're teaching them to be company men for companies that no longer need them, you know, and we'll need them less. And we'll need them less, exactly. Yeah. As you go forward, need them less and less every day. Um, you know, just looking at automation and and efficiencies. I, I I did a podcast today, and what I talked about was the fact that every business's goal, if they're going to survive, is to improve efficiency. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you're designing out labor at every opportunity. Right. Right. So if I'm teaching you a success formula based on a labor centric market in a market that's moving more and more toward automation and the, 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 the dissolving of labor forces, mm-hmm. I'm teaching you a failed formula. Sure. I mean, hell, my kids probably aren't even going to have to drive their own cars by the time they're at home. No. You know, you won't even be able to get a job as a limo driver or a, ca- a taxi driver anymore. Yeah. And do you think that's fanciful? That's, dude, that's not fanciful. No. I mean, I, I think it's kind of sad, really. I mean, it, it seems like we're sort of a. Uh, uh, eroding our own usefulness, you know, with all of these technologies. So, you know, part, partly I think it's a little sad because I think we just become more and more sort of useless as a species as we allow technology to take over our lives. But that's that's neither here nor there, you know. But I think what we're, I think the problem, the biggest problem I see with it is that we're designing out the the, the first job, mm-hmm. right? So that I only want somebody with experience, but nobody can get experience. So sooner or later, we're gonna have to solve that problem. If we're going to have a workforce for the things that are left to be done, because, you know, what, what you could always bet on when I was a kid, I'm sure it's the same with you. If you wanted it, you could get a job in a fast food place. Right. Right. And you could get a couple months at least of employment under your belt and try to find something better and at least learn how to show up and learn how to work and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and prove that you can hold a job. Mm-hmm. So what happens when you get to a point where, like, all those or majority of those entry-level positions, or most of them are gone. Uh-huh. And, and how does a young person get a start? And I think you have to think differently. I agree, yeah. 
Yeah. So what do you what do your kids do all day long? They're unschooled, so they just run around and play video games. Oh and, God, yeah, right. Play, yeah, I mean, you know, you know they, <laughs> they have no structure, and you just, they just do whatever they want. It's it's childhood anarchy. Yeah, that that is the great fallacy of this approach. I mean, I think one of the um, one of the interesting aspects of this approach, and, and something that's not immediately logical to people, is that it requires an enormous amount of parental facilitation and energy. At least, you know, at least our style of immersion learning does. And again, I don't, I, I, like I said earlier in the show, you know, this can be a lot of different things to a lot of different families. In our family, it means that we are working and our kids are working alongside us, you know, sort of day in, day out. Um, and that requires a, a tremendous amount of patience um, and and just sort of tenacity, I guess, in some ways. You know, I mean, one thing I've really someone was asking me uh, about sort of like my own personal growth in relation to this style of learning. And, you know, oh, man, it's like I've had to learn to be so incredibly patient. Um, and, and the re, you know, the rewards are totally worth it. But. This is not a lazy person's model. Let's put it that way. And so, you know, what my kids do, I mean, they're, they, we, they don't play video games. We don't have a gaming console. We do have a computer, and they use it for, you know, some YouTube, like, instructional videos or music or whatever. But they're really not drawn to that kind of technology. Um, they both are really avid readers. Um, they read a lot. Um, and when they're not reading, you know, of course, it's, it's seasonal here. We live in a place where, where there's, there's real differentiation between the seasons. Um, but they spend a lot of time outdoors. Uh, and so that might be anything from, like, you know, building shelters, um, uh, working on, you know, one project or another. Lately, they've been making um, black ash pack baskets where they actually fell the tree with axes um, and pound splints out of the black ash and weave them into baskets um, they do a lot of hunting and trapping. Um, they work with us around our farm a lot. Um, so, you know, building projects, both, both minor and major, um, animal husbandry, caring for the animals in the gardens. Um, they have friends that they play with. I mean, sometimes they just play, you know, um, they wander, they go fishing, uh, I, I don't know, I could go on, but, you know, they live, I think, in some ways, and I've heard this described, you know, there's a lot of sort of the old timers in our in our town are sort of always look at my kids, you know, I think with a little bit of envy because they see how my kids are sort of in some ways embodying the way a lot of us, I think, imagined childhood back in like the 1950s or something. Does that make sense? Yeah, the, the nostalgia of that. that yeah, I, the nostalgia. I, you know, my kids are always, you know, they wear belt knives with them everywhere they go, and they're always sort of dressed in these you know, sort of faded, ripped up camo shirts and, and, and jeans. And, you know, they obviously are very much sort of creatures of, of, um, the forest. And, you know, it's really fun to see the relationships they've developed with some of these older, mostly men in their sixties and seventies who sort of grew up, you know, with a lot of the same experiences, but, you know, are really nostalgic for it and don't see a lot of other kids sort of engaged in that. And, and so that's actually been, a wonderful asset for them because a lot of these guys have been incredibly sort of encouraging and helpful and wanting to sort of show and teach them things. Um, but you know, they spend a lot of time outdoors. Um, they're, they're really drawn toward being in the wild and I couldn't be happier about that, frankly. Um, is there any measure of progress then? Is there any, like, is there any accountability to get something learned or understood? How, how do you determine that the child is advancing? 
Yeah, so, well, how we determine it is, is that we're there, we're observing it all the time. So we, we see them, you know, and I'm not just interested in their sort of, and this is another thing I think where, where sort of structured standardized learning falls short is that it really only sort of marks a certain type of intellectual development. I don't even know if it really measures that very well, but, you know, it, it, it does measure these scores and these test scores and supposedly is measuring, you know, that intellectual development. You know, I'm also really interested in my children's emotional, physical development. I'm interested in their, how their judgment is evolving, you know. Um, and so we see that all the time because we're there to see it. That's another advantage of this type of education is that, um, you know, we have the opportunity to really observe our children and see what's working and what's not, you know, close up. Um, now, we do have to satisfy some Vermont is is one of the more strict states in terms of homeschool oversight. And so we do have to satisfy their their standards. And that means submitting every year, um, you know, a, a sort of curriculum that we're going to follow. And so we are, we are sort of put in the position of breaking down um, or describing their learning in the context of of these segregated subjects, which you know, isn't really all that hard to do. It's a little bit of a dog and pony show, but it's it's not that really that hard to explain how that happens. Um, and then at the end of the year, um, there are different choices in terms of assessment. Um, one of the choices is that we can actually take them in for standardized testing, but that's actually sort of the antithesis of what we're trying to achieve here, so we don't choose that. Um, we can have them assessed by a licensed educator, or we can submit a portfolio. Um, and, you, you know, at, the, at this, this year, I'm not exactly sure whether we're going to go the assessment, uh, the licensed educator assessment or the portfolio routes. But, um, you know, one or the other will be able to demonstrate that they're making progress. So, so there, I mean, because that is necessary if your child decides, I want to go to a university, I want to go to a college. There has to be some level of... Uh, there has to be some level of competency. Yeah. Yeah. Question. yeah. Now, you know, one of the, it's, it's interesting that one of the things I did hear from a lot of the adult unschoolers I spoke with, um, all of whom were grateful for that, having been allowed to follow that path, um, but quite a few of them did say they wished they um, had spent more time learning math. Um, and that was a little bit of a, you know, that was actually really good for uh, Penny, my wife, and I to hear because we were like, okay, well, we probably do need to spend a little bit of time, you know, working on our math skills because that is that is one subject I think that it becomes the bane of um, a lot of immersion learn, learning families. Um Especially those where the parents weren't, you know, aren't naturally drawn to numbers, and that's that's definitely true of my wife and myself. Um, you know, and, and so some of the adult unschoolers I spoke with who had gone on to college had had to take some remedial um, math, um, and you know, people have said, well, what if they have to take like remedial math? They're going to have to take remedial math, and you know, that's possible. And and, and my my reply to that is, well, if they have to take remedial math, they would be um, basically at the same level as something like 70% of U.S. high school graduates, you know? Sure. So sure. I think in that one, in that one discipline, by the way. Yeah, right. And, you know, it's entirely possible that if they do want to go on to college and depending on what the college is, that they will have to spend, you know, take a couple of community college classes or whatever to sort of, um, you know, sort of pay their dues, so to speak. Um, it's, impo- it's possible that they won't. I mean, a lot of colleges are really seeing the value in this kind of education and are specifically actually seeking out kids who have had this kind of education because they recognize, you know, sort of the resources that they bring to the school. And they also recognize 
the failure of, of standardized assessment in sort of in you know acknowledging those resources. Um, well, and I would also say this: like the the fact that some of them need to up their math a little bit when they go to the, to university or college is is sometimes yes, maybe more focus needs to be there, and then sometimes. It's also the dogma of the of the higher learning institution as well. If you're going to school to take engineering, mm-hmm. I have no doubt you need advanced calculus and trigonometry. Right. If you're going to get a degree in marketing, right. which I have a little bit of understanding with, it is very true that if you really don't want to understand marketing and sales and the economics of a company – a basic understanding of algebra, especially when you start utilizing things like spreadsheets and knowing sure. how to write formulas, you need absolutely that. necessary, and if not necessary, absolutely advantageous. Mm-hmm. But in, in all the marketing that I've done, in 20 years of marketing and sales, I have never once used anything I learned in trigonometry or calculus, not one time. Yet I know full well if I had gone to school for a degree in marketing, I would have been forced to take classes in calculus and trigonometry. So does the homeschooler who decides I actually want to build companies and learn how to market, and and I'm going to go to university for that, that takes a marketing discipline that ends up having to take remedial math so that they can do calculus and trigonometry at the university level, really need it, or has the institution required it? Right. Well, yeah, those are very different things, are they not? Very different things. And, and here I think we're sort of getting at some of those flawed assumptions that I hinted at earlier. You know, and, I, and again, of course, there are career paths that will require, uh, that do require them to know, you know, advanced calculus and trigonometry and physics and all of these things. Um, but there are very many paths that don't. Uh, and I guess, you know, one of the things that I have complete confidence in is that by raising sort of resourceful human beings, um, if they do choose one of those paths, um, they will have the resourcefulness um, and simple desire to go out and learn what they need to learn to follow that path. I, I think, you know, the idea that every child has to, uh, you know, sort of be sat down and taught these things um that's that I think is a really flawed assumption, and it and and you know the 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 flip side of that is not only are you sort of forcing them to sort of sit and and memorize something that they're really not all that interested in, um, but you're also um, uh, sort of monopolizing time that could be so much better spent in other ways. Absolutely, I mean, I think like I don't like lying to people, and I think that we lie to children on a daily basis especially at the high school level with high school math, with the trig, the calc, et cetera, you need to learn this. You'll use it someday. Mm-hmm. That, that is right up there with peeing in somebody's boot and trying to tell them it's raining. <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're going to go, trust me, if you're going to be an engineer, you're going to do structural calculations for a bridge mm-hmm. that I'm going to drive over. I really want you to be good at math. Mm-hmm. Okay? I really, really do. But if you are going to become an artisan, that carves wood. Right. I'm sure we could come up with all kinds of calculations about the, 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 the shape of the wood and all, but it's not necessary. What's necessary is an artist's hands and an artist's eyes. Right. And it's up to you whether you want to design bridges or sculptures. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's wrong for me to, it's one thing for me to say, this is what I told my kid when he was in high school. You got to do this because they make you and you need good grades. So you'll have it. You can, you can get into school if you want to. So you, you don't want to shut down the opportunity. So just do what they say. Mm-hmm. I never once told him he was going to use it because I, I knew he was smart enough. He'd say, well, when do you use it? Right. 
Yeah. And if you said that to me, I would have been done. I would have been like, right, I, right. yeah. I could have explained a few things. He'd be like, well, I think that's basic algebra. And I would have been like, yeah, it is. Because I, I, I don't, I took calc and I took trig in high school. Mm-hmm. If you put that crap in front of me today, I don't. I don't, it's not even that I couldn't remember. I don't care to remember. Sure, and it was it, because it was all abstract and because you were being forced to do it, you know? Um, so it was, it's kind of meaningless to you, you know? But I could do the same, I could do the same formulas pretty well in chemistry because I gave a damn. Mm-hmm. And, right. and I think that's the big thing. What's, so like one of the things I would try to, to inst- institute into an educational program is what I guess what I call the give a damn factor. Uh-huh. <laughs> How much does the kid give a damn? And, Based on what they what they seem to be leaning toward, how much should they give a damn? Mm-hmm. So I might make the case to the kid, look, you're saying you want to you want to design buildings. Yeah, I know this stuff's tough, but you're gonna have you're gonna need this if that's what you're really gonna do. Right. But but if the kids if the kid wants to do something like I don't know something totally different that doesn't I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, yeah. I'm try to create a false give a damn factor because. It's it's going to result in resentment. Yes. And again, like you said, I think the biggest tragedy is wasted time. Yes. I, I why am I spending time on 14th French, century French literature? Right. Right. When, when I, I I don't give a damn, and it's never going to be useful to me. And I give it. And you know, I love that. I love I love that phrase, the give a damn factor, because I you know we've seen time and again how. Um, how critical that's been to our kids learning, uh, you know, a perfect example is a few years back, um, you know, we were sort of really struggling with their, their handwriting. They didn't really want to, to practice their penmanship or, or write really. And it's mm-hmm. not really part of our um, sort of educational philosophy again, to sort of like sit them down and compel them to do that. Um, but what they really did want to do, what they really gave a damn about was passing their hunter safety test. And ah. part, of, part of passing the hunter safety test is filling out, you know, something like a 70-something page workbook, right, by hand ah. with answers to all these questions. That's how my kids learned to write. Uh, and they didn't they didn't want to do it, but they gave a damn so much about the end result. And I shouldn't say that's how they learned to write. They did know how to write prior to that. But, but they learned how to write legibly. Right. right? Yes, exactly. You know, and so, so you uh, turn it in. Somebody has to read it and know what you said. Yeah. And they spent hours, you know, hunched over their those workbooks. You know, as my wife said, is like, look, they're they're learning how to, like, memorize and regurgitate meaningless information just like they would in school. You know, <laughs> but they did it because they cared. Right. Because they gave a damn and they they there was something they wanted and they had their sights set on it and they were going to do it. Um, and and that was a really sort of powerful moment for me to sort of realize, you know, that that I you know, we don't have to force children into learning these things. And, you know, another point I, I think is really worth making when we start talking about all the things that perhaps they're quote unquote missing out on, you know, when they're in school or that they're not learning in school. You know, I think about so much about all the things that they know that not even most adults know anymore. I mean, my kids can walk down into our woodlot and identify every tree in our woodlot from 30 paces. They can go down there and find right now probably a dozen varieties of edible forest plants, right? They can butcher a deer. I mean, Listen, you know, I'm not saying those are essential life skills for anyone either, but why do we assume that advanced trigonometry is more important than knowing how to feed yourself? Well, I, that's you're, you're making me think of my childhood now and, and, you know, being 15 and out in the cold barn skinning and butchering a deer. Right. And, and if I had to, tra- like if they said, okay, you can, you can either 
retain the ability to do that or retain the ability to 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 solve the the circumference of a a, a, a circle right uh, yeah the circle needs to be about that big good I, I want to be able to to do those types of things yeah. and it, it amazes me that that's actually seen as something complicated yeah like, it's, it's, deer is freaking easy and you and what you, you know what you realize is that most uh, standardized learning is it, it really um, is not about making self-reliant people. It's it's really about making people who are actually uh, increasingly dependent on industry. You know, and, and again, this, this is not why we we follow this path. I'm not trying to create a bunch of you know a couple of a, a couple of kids who are, are just going to like turn their backs on society. I, but I do think um, I'm really happy to be able to provide them with the experience that experiences that allow them to foster skills that, you know, do allow them to provide for themselves if they choose that path, uh, you know, later in life. The, the more you make a person capable of living off, let's just say, the land, mm-hmm. the more their engagement with society becomes voluntary. Yeah, right. Right. So that that's what I that, that that's what I think we should be teaching people now is so I would love to have a voluntary society with nobody compelled to do anything <laughs> and the one rule being the non-aggression principle. You right, don't hurt right. anybody, I don't give a shit, right? Yeah. But society's not ready to go there. So we have to go there as individuals, and if you don't give somebody the ability to feed themselves, to clothe themselves, the knowledge that if 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 I lost everything, I don't have to huddle up under a newspaper under an overpass. I could go make an existence for myself that would be meaningful. Right. If you give them that, then every place they choose to engage with society, they've actually chosen that. Where otherwise they do what they feel they have to to survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, really and that right. is a shitty way to live. And it's the way 95% of people live right now. Right. And, you know, what you're talking about, you know, that, that ability, that, that capability, capacity, um, to to survive and to thrive on your own terms. I mean, that's been, you know, I, I'm not even as skilled as my kids, to be honest, in terms of like, you know, w- you know, wilderness skills. Um, but I know in my life just how incredibly empowering that is. Um, you know, we sort of been fortunate enough to create a lifestyle for us that makes us, you know, much less dependent on sort of on industry and and you know finance um, than a lot of our our fellow countrymen and women and. Um, that's been an incredibly liberating and empowering factor in my life. And, and we're not totally independent, and, and I, I don't mean to suggest that we are even striving to be, but, um, but you know, again, I sort of harken back to our conversation about college and about writing. Like, you know, if I had gotten on that debt treadmill of college, um, you know, it would have sort of compelled me to go on to try to, uh, you know, find a job that would service that debt. And, you know, that, that's sort of this whole package um, that, you know, you quickly realize uh, is is more of a trap than, than, you know, the freedom that we cherish so much in this country. Here's how I try to get people to really think about student loan debt before they take it on. Imagine you're 18, you're going to go to college, you're going to take on student loan debt, and you're going to go to a typical middle-level University, you're probably going to come out with about eighty grand in debt. Mm-hmm. You, if you immediately after you get out of there, you actually find a decent job, making a decent wage, and pay the debt as it's designed to be paid. Move into an apartment of your own and buy a dog. <laughs> You'll bury the freaking dog 
before you finish paying off the debt. Right. If you buy the dog as a puppy, the dog will be buried before the debt is paid. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and you'll bury a cat, which will live 20 years or more, right. before you pay off the debt. You, so you might as well name the debt. Because mm-hmm. it's going to be as long with you as a long-lived pet. Yeah, you invite your right. pet to cook. And it is going, and you can't tell me it's not going to make you make decisions you otherwise would not have made. Sure. You can't tell me it's not going to make you, when, when you realize that you're working for somebody that is a piece of excrement. You just know that this is the, a, a terrible company, you're working for a terrible person, and you're doing terrible things, and you didn't know when you took the job or you would have taken it, but now you're in it, and you've got that debt, you've got the mortgage, and you've got everything else that you're not going to say, i got to do it until I find something else. Where if you had none of those burdens, you just go, really? Bye. Yeah, it makes you captive. There's no question, you know. And I mean, it's, it's it's a piece of advice that when a lot of people people often contact me, you know, I have a blog that's pretty widely read, and and um, or people read my books and they look me up, and you know, a lot of people are I, I think are are somewhat enamored of the idea of living, you know, in the in rural Vermont and having this little farmstead, and you know, the, they really want to know how to go about it and what you know, sort of how we made it work, and and you know, first of all, we don't come from family money. We you know, we, my wife and I really really sort of scrimped and scraped scraped to try to make this happen. Um, and we did have debt for a period of time. We did initially take on some debt. Um, and I just, you know, I hated living with debt, Jack. It was, it was just like this, it felt like this noose around my neck. <laughs> um, you know, we made double and triple. I mean, we worked our asses off to pay that down. And, and debt is another one of those, you know, or the absence of debt is another one of those incredibly enabling factors. And I know that not everyone, you know, is, can, can make that work. It's gotten more and more difficult, I think, to make that work. Um, but generally, student loans are the first sort of, you know, sort of major stepping stone onto the debt treadmill, no question. You know, then you get the 30 year, then you have the 30 year mortgage. In outstanding student loan debts is one, the total amount owed by people back for their education. It's $1.1 trillion. That is uh, equivalent to the national budget just 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty stunning. That, that's, that's dramatically stunning. And again, you'll bury the dog before you pay the debt off. And so you have to really think about if, if you know, is this what you really want to do? And if, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think student loan debt is non-recourse debt. In other words, if it's, if it's public or uh, what do you call it? Where, where it's, uh, it, if it's a, if it's a, a debt uh, backed by the government, you can't escape it. They will garnish your social security nice. weight. Yeah, 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 yeah. To collect the debt, so it can't be discharged with a bankruptcy or what have you, and right. and that's why I recently had somebody that said I just got a credit card. Ah, uh-huh. but then it went further and it said it's a twenty thousand dollar pre approved credit card, and the interest rate was lower than the interest rate on their school debt, mm-hmm. and they had about I think eleven thousand dollars in school debt. Should I get the credit card, use the credit card to pay off the school debt, and oh, then pay yeah. the credit card? I'm like, hell yes, because if you go bankrupt, you can discharge the credit card debt, right. and they will hunt you to the end of your life right. for the student loan debt. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Not that that should be your plan, but no, but to fail, too. You have to plan for shit to go wrong, and sometimes it does. Right. Yeah, yeah. So... How can people learn more about you, buy your books, et cetera? Um, you know, probably the most uh, concise and convenient way is to get on my website, which is ben, www.benhewitt.net. Um, 
And there's a link there to purchasing my books. Um, I, I blog there frequently and, and, you know, mostly on all of the issues that we've been talking about today. So, you know, if people are, are interested in sort of furthering the conversation, there's a lot of material on there um, about um, our experiences and thoughts on, on uh, these subjects. Um, and, you know, I, I would welcome any of your readers uh, on, on my blog and, or to send me emails or what, whatever is their sort of favorite way of being in touch. I, I would love to hear from them. And what would you say to the parents to say, you know what, I'd really like to do some type of homeschooling, unschooling, but I just don't know that I can. How, how does a person that's like, it's a big jump for a person to take that's currently using the, the system as it is. Yeah, and, 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 you know, and some people don't even want to sort of totally turn their backs on the system either. They, they don't have, they just can't make it work with, with their lives at this, at this point, or they simply don't want to, but they do want to sort of take on elements or, or aspects of it. And I, you know, one of my favorite examples is a friend of ours who, whose daughter actually does go to public school, um, but she actually called the principal, this is an elementary school child, and said, um, I will not allow my daughter to have homework. Um, and the, the school actually acquiesced. They said, okay, we're not going to send her home with homework. I mean, that's not going to work forever. Um, but my point in that is that I think, you know, there are ways to sort of liberate our kids and, and um, sort of get them out from under um, sort of the, the, the you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a little hyperbole here, but to make a point, but sort of the iron fist of standardized education, even if they are still going to school. And, and I think, you know, one of, the, one of the issues I see with school is that so often it's not really just school. It's like it becomes this whole sort of basket of extracurricular activities. And, I, I, again, I don't want to say that I don't want to disparage any of those activities in and of themselves, um, but my um, anecdotal observation is that these families end up, you know, spending their days running around willy-nilly, uh, you know, trying to sort of uh, uh, ferry their kids back and forth from all of these activities and never really giving their children an opportunity to just sort of be kids, you know, never giving their, their children an opportunity to explore the woods behind their house or, or the park down the street, um, never really giving them an opportunity to learn uh, of their own accord. Um, and so even if you can't take your kids out of school or aren't inclined to take your kids out of school, um, I think that there are ways that you can, you can implement as aspects of this immersion learning into their lives. Well, and I would add to that with the extracurricular activities. I've got a, a brother and sister-in-law that have these kid, their kids in just every single activity they can get them into. Right. And they're the type of people that once they start, you're, you're, you're not quitting. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and all these people do is go yeah yeah they never stop they say they never have time to do anything because it's either church or youth group or soccer or baseball or football or piano or and it's just constant yes and yes. I, I, like I, I try to talk to them but you have to be gentle when dealing with family but it's like you have you have two problems number one is your 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 one child of two is going to be going to college next year mm -hmm. and the other one is three years behind them and that means in four years, you haven't spent time as a couple mm. because one's going here with one kid and one's going there because the activity is the same time. And all of this busyness is just going to go pump. Yeah, right. And then you're going to look at each other and not know each other. Right. Yeah. 
The other problem is, I guarantee you, neither one of these children, when they're 40, will ever say, I wish I would have played one more soccer game or one more football game or went to one more tap recital or whatever. But they will say, I wish I had spent more time with my parents. Yeah, and you know, I mean, we, on most days, Jack, we eat three meals together as a family. You know, and that, that's not always true because I do travel a little bit if I'm if I'm working on a story or a, or a project or a, sure. like a speaking gig or whatever. But I would say, you know, six days out of the week, we eat three meals together as a family. And the other day, we probably eat two. Um, and, you know, how I mean, I, I, first of all, I feel I'm, I'm incredibly grateful and I feel kind of blessed to be able to say that. And it makes me really sad when, you know, I often when I say that, when I mention that to people, they sort of look at me and say, gosh, you know, we don't even eat one meal together as a family mm. at, at per day. Um, and that just makes me kind of sad, you know, and and um, I'm not I'm not passing judgment on that. I, I it's not I, I don't I, I don't blame them for that. It's, it, it, I'm totally empathetic to the fact that, um, you know, we we they're sort of caught in this this sort of web of systems that that makes that an impossibility. Um, and, you know, and that's it's it's another thing that sort of school does, um, which is, uh, uh, you know, fragment families to a certain extent. Um, Definitely. I wish I could say I knew all this when I was younger and my son was, you know, of school age and I didn't. Uh-huh. But one thing I did know, and you mentioned meals, is when we hunted for houses, I would always look at the dining room. And I would say to myself, if we moved in here, arranged the living room this way, and the dining room's there with the table, and we're sitting at that table, could you see the TV from the dining room table? Uh-huh. And if you could, it was a big freaking X numeric, yeah. you know? Yeah. It doesn't mean, like, if the house is perfect, and, well, I'll just turn the damn thing off, but just to remove that even as a possibility. Right. So that when you sat down at the table for dinner, or and with me it was I traveled a lot, but when I was home it was at least dinner and, and, and breakfast. Right. When you sat down... Everything else is, and one of my big rules is, even with my wife, answer the phone during dinner, and I will throw it out the uh-huh. window. Yeah, I will throw it right you. out right. the window. You do not. It, 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 what if it's an emergency? If it's an emergency, they'll immediately call back. Right, right. If it rings once and doesn't ring again, it'll keep for the thirty minutes that we're sitting here eating. Yeah, and I, that is a huge hole in American lives and. Homeschool, unschool, conventional school, I don't care. Yeah. A family that cares enough can make time to eat together, at least dinner. Absolutely. I, uh, you know, I, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, I mean, we, have a, we do have a computer in our sort of main living room. We actually keep a, a little curtain over it, you know. So it's like if you want to use that thing, you have to be very sort of conscious and aware of, of what you're doing. You have to go over there and, and actually pull the curtain back and, and pull the keyboard out, slide the keyboard out, right? It's, it's, you know, we're at this place now with the prevalence of, of mobile devices that, um, you know, we end up, I think, just sort of unconsciously immersed in this technology all the yeah. time. Yeah, um, you, you tell me if you don't think this is the case. You're on the highway. Some ass clown is in the fast lane weaving a little bit back and forth and doing 10 under the speed limit. Mm-hmm. What are the odds that when you pass him on the inside because you have to to get around him, right. he's holding a phone and he's not talking on it, he's jackedly around with it? Sure. Oh, yeah. It's like every nine out of ten times, that's what it is. They're holding it out and they're, they're, they can't separate from that screen even while they're driving a car. Right, right. 
And, and when you add TV and everything else, that I'm not any tech. If it was any tech, I wouldn't have a podcast. Right. No. You know, I wouldn't, yeah. You know. No. 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 I mean, technology. I mean, it's part of the world we live in, and and you know, it's critical that we have an understanding of it and how to use it. But um, you know, we need to make technology captive to us rather than the other way around. You know? Well, and, okay. In technology, you get extra lives, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, all all these things that go along with the video game concept. See, I think what really grounds kids like yours is in the real world. If, if you're skinning a deer mm-hmm. and you wanted to save the hide and you cut a hole in the hide, you, there's no healing potion, right? Right. To put, to put it back together. Or you just mentioned your young, your, your, I think your older one was dying traps, uh-huh. right? Yeah. You know, I, I ran a trap line when I was in school and I did it so I could buy my first call, car, mm-hmm. right? And if I didn't trap enough that year, no car. Right. Yeah. Very simple. Yeah. Right. There's no, there's no cheating. There's no cheat codes. There's no healing potions. There's there's none of that. Right. You actually have to experience success and failure and hard rules, which is how life works. Yes. You can, and it's yes. very, it actually so. Here's my my biggest issue with all of this crap with the, with kids today. It's not the kids. It's the system that tells them how wonderful they are mm-hmm. for for mediocrity. <laughs> never never allows them to risk. Therefore, never allows them to fail. And the big problem with that is not just what they're not capable of. We, I, I firmly believe we have more children today. I, I know this is the case. We have more children today between 18 and 22 killing themselves right. than any time in our history. Yes. I firmly believe, I believe the reason is that if you tell somebody they're great for mediocrity for long enough, sooner or later they figure it out mm-hmm. and they feel worthless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They just feel like I suck. Right. My, my best friend's sons hung himself at 21. Oh, God. And yeah. the note that he left behind was, I never thought I would amount to anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not blaming anybody individually, but I think the society sure. as a whole has created that, that feeling in our young people like, I, I just don't, I, I suck. And I know I suck because they keep telling me I'm great. For, <laughs> right. So, yeah. And you can't know victory without defeat. That's that's as old. I mean, that's as old school as it gets, right? Yeah, you have yeah, yeah. to down, You have to lose to, to understand. Like, if you always win at something, you don't really value winning anymore. I hate parents that like always let their kids win when they play games. Uh huh. Yeah. Now, don't always just beat the, the you know just because you can beat the, the tar out of them, but don't just let them always win. Let them learn how to lose too. Wait, you're saying I shouldn't be feeling that? I shouldn't be beating the tar out of them all the time. No. Oh, oh, shoot. You gotta give a chance. I'm gonna have to go apologize. <laughs> you, can, you can still you can still win, but you gotta at least you know. Hey, so, yeah, and your comment I think about you know sort of unhappiness, depression, or whatever you, you know that that's leading to those sort of tragic um, premature life endings. Um, to me, it, 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 that's really connected to another issue with kids in school these days, and which is that we've had it over the past couple decades a sevenfold increase. Um, in the prescription of um, behavior modification drugs. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, which are known, A, to be addictive, B, to have um, you know, incredibly damaging side effects, including depression, including violent behavior, um, and C, are at, have actually been proven to not really actually be all that effective. Um, now, there may be a small minority of children who really can benefit from those, but... As I just pointed out, we now have, I think it's 11% of school-going American boys on 
um, anti, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the technical term for them, but drugs like Ritalin. Antipsychotic. Thank you. Yeah, uh, that, that may not even be right, but, uh, but anyway, on, on those behavior modification drugs, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, you have to wonder to what extent that is, um, the result of a, of a system that simply can't accommodate anyone who wants to color outside the lines a little bit, who can't, you know, I'm speaking metaphorically here, but, um, or, or simply, I mean, I know, you know, I had a terrible time sitting still in school. I know my older son in particular would, would, um, really chafe at that. Um, and well, it's not natural. Here's the thing. They, they say they want the child to be normal. Mm-hmm. Well, normal is specifically not being normal. Okay. Cause if, if you set up desks in a row, okay, and you didn't require the children to sit there for eight hours a day, and, and, and you had a group of kids that just walked in and all sat down, mm-hmm. right, and just started doing the work it, it, without being threatened into it, if, if children complied with that and did it, you'd start looking around and wonder if Stephen King wrote a novel and what you're the in it. What's wrong with these kids? Like, this is freaking weird, man. Like, this is not cool. Yeah, so yeah. you're asking them to behave abnormal. You're calling it normal. And anybody that doesn't comply will medicate them so they will comply with abnormal behavior that we call normal. And then we go, gee, it's not working. Well, no shit. <laughs> Right? I mean, come on. Because tell me you wouldn't freak out. Oh, yeah. If, I mean, it's behaving that way without without the use of force. You'd be, dude, this is this is not cool. Yeah. Well, and it's just another example of how we sort of belittle children, I think, in this in this society now. Um, and, you know, not just in America, but in a lot of in a lot of first world societies. So anyway, again, the uh, the website. For uh, everybody. Yeah, so, uh, BenHewitt.net. And, and the book is called um, Homegrown. Uh, adventures in parenting off the beaten path, unschooling, and reconnecting with the natural world. And, and that can be purchased on your site, elsewhere, yeah, Amazon. On my site, you know, I, I really encourage people to try to go to and support their local bookseller, independent bookseller, if they have one. Increasingly, people don't have them, unfortunately. But um, that is my first, um, it, you know, people often ask me my preferences for where uh, they buy my books. And that's that's certainly my first preference. My second preference would be, I guess, to order it from me. And then, you know, if you need to go to the evil giant in the sky and get it off Amazon.com, it's certainly available there, too. I, and I think the biggest reason people might buy it there is the evolution of technology. I haven't bought a print book uh, in a very long time. Right, yes. And I get the Kindle edition there. Yeah. And, uh Yep. That may make you think about doing an electronic version by direct sales. I, yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, I appreciate that nudge. you can make 100% profit, right? And the other thing is, I just, so I'm sitting here in a room right now, and I'm a lifelong student, and I have five bookshelves in my office, and they're, they're crammed with books. And this is in spite of selling boxes and boxes of books to a used bookstore. Uh-huh. And it's the bulk. And, and, and I have this library that's probably thicker now than the one in my office on my phone. We've gone there with music. I guess we just haven't quite gotten there with books yet in an Yeah, it was the last time somebody burned a CD. I know, right? <laughs> well, we have a CD player in a car, but, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it, I think it's broken. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you don't know. Right, says, exactly. Yeah, tell so. Anyway, man, I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed our conversation today, Ben. Thank you for being with us, and uh, thank you for being an example of what can be done. Hey, thank you, Jack. I really appreciate it. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierka today along with Ben Hewitt helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. The revolution is you. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. 
Revolution is you. 